Who's the first to protect our land without compromise? Tamacycle, the first of its kind ecological net wrap and baler twine made with recycled content. Contact your local dealer today and start baling for a better tomorrow. Tama, always first. Hello and welcome to your Over the Farmgate podcast brought to you by Farmers Guardian. I'm your host this week, FG Deputy Editor Olivia Midgley. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite platform so you never miss an episode. Now, you may have seen or heard about a little show on Amazon Prime called Clarkson's Farm, which follows TV presenter Jeremy Clarkson as he makes his first foray into farming and all the trials and tribulations that come with it. It's been an absolute hit amongst farmers and non-farming folk alike. Everyone's talking about it, but what's it like to actually take part in it? Well, I speak to one of the show's farming stars later in the podcast. But first, and hot on the heels of our rural crime special last week, Alex Black has been speaking to NFU Deputy President Stuart Roberts about the scourge of fly tipping. With lockdown seeing the closure of local authority tips, waste dumped in the countryside has reached epidemic proportions, with gateways, fields and country lanes littered with rubbish. So how can farmers fight back? Alex started off by asking Stuart about a recent Environment Agency report on fly tipping and what action he wants to see taken. For years now, we we in the farming community and in rural communities all over the country have have known the scale of the issue. Um, It's great. The Environment Agency report has identified that. So they're, they're agreeing with us on that. But we now need to see some action off the back of it. Um, and, and look, some of these, unfortunately, are, are long term asks of ours about investigation, about prosecution, about the penalties being um, um, fit for the crime. Um, and, and that's really where we need to move the discussion on to, whether it be with the Environment Agency, whether it be with the Home Office, whether it be with magistrates, uh, whether it be with local authorities. And that's part of the problem, I suspect, that there's, there's lots, of, um, lots of gaps between organisations where this can sometimes uh, fall between. And one of the things that stood out to me in there was, you know, a lot of farmers said that they believed it had got worse um worse recently is that something that you've seen uh, from you know your interactions with members it 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 absolutely is and and you're absolutely right i think it was 50 percent or just shy of 50 percent in in their report certainly we're finding the same both both in surveys and we have our annual rural prime survey which is showing the same um, but also you look at some of the other statistics that are collected here and and particularly actually during um, during that national, the, the tight national lockdown, if you like, between March and June of last year, we saw a real spike uh, in incidents, but actually that level has stayed pretty high th- throughout the last year, really. Um, it was already at a high level, but we've certainly seen it getting worse. And I think, interestingly, getting worse in not just the normal places. And I think historically, um, those who've suffered with this crime, um, it generally is in the same places. You know, there are particular roads, particular gateways, particular fields where where there's always been incidents and and time and time again. But actually the parts of the country where we're seeing this is, is, is now more widespread, the parts of farms is more widespread. It, it's definitely getting worse, um, and particularly over the last year has got significantly worse. 
and I suppose then we need to move on to the next thing that you touched on there. What what would you like to uh, see come of this survey? What would you like to see more of to, to help those farmers? Um, so I think the, the first thing for me, um, and actually this is something that's often forgotten, but I think we all need to, and, and look, we've got a role to play in this, and, and but particularly um, the environment agency, local authorities, et cetera, have got a role to play is actually just emphasizing to people what the law is, who's responsible for waste. And I think quite often um, as human beings, as members of society, we think if we pay someone to take something away, then actually we've, we've absolved our responsibility. All of a sudden it's, it's their responsibility. And actually we don't realize that if that white van or if that um, small lorry goes and tips my waste, my rubbish uh, somewhere, uh, illegally it's actually me that is liable for prosecution and I'm sure there are lots and lots of people who would not themselves commit this crime but who actually are taking part in the crime uh, and are liable for prosecution but they don't know and I think we've really got to get that message on to, to householders so that it is not only is it um, illegal to, to flight it it's completely socially unacceptable. That's where we've absolutely got to get to. And it is socially unacceptable. But we do also need to see um, all the parties working better together, whether that be the environment agency, local authorities, uh, the police, um, landowners ourselves. And I think that's something that we need to see better uh, joined up work uh, between them. But also, um, I do call on people to report it. Quite often, we find, and it's the same with lots of different rural crime actually, that sometimes it isn't reported because we think that I'll just clear it up myself because nothing's going to happen. Um, and actually, if we don't report it, then we don't get a real scale of it. And, and the, the last point for me, and this is a really important one, I think, Alex, is, is around the, the penalties that are associated with this. And we really do need to see people like um, the Magistrates Association and magistrates themselves understanding the severity of this crime. You know, it isn't a bit of litter, a harmless crime. You know, these are really significant crimes. And the penalties I've heard in the past are basically a joke. You know, there was one the other day I, I heard of, it was a neighbouring farmer to mine. Um, and actually the, the, the local authority took it seriously. The police took it seriously. So they, they did an investigation. That's great. They, uh, they carried out that investigation and they, they, they took someone to court. This is great stuff. They prosecuted someone. Um, that person was convicted. This is brilliant. Yeah, this is great. And they then got the penalty. And the penalty, and I, I struggled to compute this, but the penalty was less than the cost of hiring a skip in the first place to get rid of that waste. So actually, that's not a, a deterrent. That's not a penalty. Arguably, that's just the cost of doing business for that person who, who got rid of that waste. And I think we've got to get to a point where the penalties really deter people. Um, and we have had some great examples where actually people's vehicles have been uh, uh, seized and crushed. And, and that's good. And I think that sends a strong message. In Hertfordshire, we've seen some, some good examples of this, but we're not seeing enough of it. Um, and we need to see... Uh, both magistrates, but also all those other authorities uh, waking up and, and treating it with the severity it needs. But ultimately, all of us as householders have got to understand our responsibility 
for our waste and we can't turn a blind eye just because that white van has, has taken a few pound notes from us and, and disposed of our rubbish in a way that we then pretend we're not responsible for. Uh, I don't know whether you can tell, you know, you talk about educating, educating the public there, if that's the right way to put it. But, um, you know, what people need, need to be doing, you know, it's all right saying don't just give it to, to a white van man, but what, what do they need to be, be checking before they're disposing of the waste? Well, the reality is we, we, we all of us, are, are responsible for our waste um, and the main, uh, maintaining responsibility for our waste until it reaches its final disposal point. So that's a legal waste disposal point. So that could be the local recycling centre, that could be the local authority collecting the waste, it could ultimately be you know, a, a registered waste collector or a, a, la a landfill site. Um, and, and actually, we just need to make sure you know, ask the question. So when somebody takes away your waste, ask for that waste certificate, ask for their registration, just ask the question. Um, but I also think, and, and, and you touched earlier about what else do we need? And I, I think certainly one of the reasons we've seen uh, a significant increase over the last year has been a direct impact from COVID and actually the operating hours, for example, of, of those local uh, recycling centers a dump as i used to to call it when i was a kid um and actually the operating hours have got got much shorter um we're seeing them being closed uh, in many many parts of the country so so arguably we've just made it harder for people who do want to do the right thing um to do it and i think we, we really need to see local authorities there and and we've got a I think when it comes to fly tipping, we've got to divide it up. There's, there's almost, I suppose, I see three different types, and, and this is a massive generalisation. You've got big commercial organised criminals who are, you know, stripping waste of its identity. They are dumping lorry loads of waste uh, in places, and, and there's some horrific examples you would have seen and I've seen of, of yeah, industrial-scale big crime. You've then got, if you like, the, the white van man, as I've described, who has a, lorry, a, a small lorry load or a van of waste, quite often collected, I suspect, by cash or collected off a building site. Uh, they don't want to pay the, the real cost of disposing of that, and they dump it in the countryside. And then you've got, if you like, the householder themselves. And there's a number of those. There's many are, are just completely irresponsible. Uh, they can't be bothered to, to find a a particular a legal route and they just dump it somewhere um, and that's unforgivable and those people need to be found and prosecuted but I also think that there is a population of people who actually they want to do the right thing it's just it's been made really hard for them because the hours of the local recycling center have been massively short or the distance they now have to go is massively long they get there there's a two-hour queue you quite often see that in my part of the world and actually they then think, look, I don't want to take this home. I'm not going to see it for two hours. And they find a gateway. And, and they need to, we need to, to deal with them. But actually, we also deal, need to deal with what was the cause of them being put in that position. And that is about making sure that it is, look, it's easy to get rid of, uh, of waste in a legitimate way, in a legal way. Uh, and that comes back quite often to local authorities, the resources they've got. And, and to some extent over the last year, the, the COVID impact on that as well. You mentioned before as well about, you know, I suppose that out, out of sight, out of mind thing. Can you give us as a farmer, you know, any of our listeners that have, have 
you know been a, a victim of fly tipping will know this but can you give us your thoughts as a farmer about what the impact is on your business from the impacts are and they're multiple alex so the first one is that there's a big cost associated with with clearing this up there's a big financial cost um you know and some of these clear-ups will cost thousands of pounds you know sometimes you will find um, hazardous waste in these things you know asbestos etc and and once it's on my land i'm responsible for clearing it up there was a there was a classic example at the other end of of, of my town um, where uh, some uh, quite a lot of refuse have been dumped, um, and actually the the farmer in question phoned the local council, uh, reported it, etc. The next he heard from the local council was a letter threatening to prosecute him for not clearing it away once it had been dumped on his land, and and this is a ridiculous situation. So look, there is a big cost associated. But there's also, um, there's also some animal health and animal welfare implications. I've seen some pretty horrific photographs. One that really sticks in my mind uh, from a, a few years ago now. But this was where uh, it was a washing machine that had been dumped. And there was a cow who then got his head stuck in the washing machine for, for a long period of time. Because basically it had just been dumped in a hedgerow, thrown over a hedgerow, it's in the field. A lot of this is 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 hazardous, as I say. Some of it is sharp. Some of it, so there's definitely some some uh, some animal welfare issues, but also for wildlife. But there's there's also the the, the maybe the softer part of it. Maybe this is me talking about, but, but the softer part, which is it just looks awful. You know, I take huge pride. Farmers up and down the country take massive pride in how the countryside looks you know we, we, the, the iconic british landscape is there because of us and, and these things are just an absolute eyesore so some of it is is very practical it's very costly as financial impacts some of it is actually emotional impacts particularly if you're in um, one of those hotspots, I always don't want to call it a hotspot, but it is a hotspot where, you know, no sooner have you cleared up the last lot of waste, the next lot's arrived. And, and some of it is also um, one of the worst impacts. And I, I almost couldn't believe this story. It was a few miles away from me where um, somebody was, they, they lived down, it's about a two mile single carriageway road to get to their farm. Um, and there's also a cut through as well. And they, uh, they drove down this road, they were, were coming, I think they were going out, and I think, of all things, I think they were visiting a relative in hospital, actually, at the time. And they drove down the road, uh, and they couldn't get out, because there was uh, a lorry had basically backed down the road, dumped their load in the middle of the road, they couldn't get out. So they thought, not a problem, I'll turn around and I'll go the other way, it's a 10 mile detour, but I'll go the other way. They went the other way, and in the time period that they'd gone from their house to where the lorry had been tipped, you, you can see what's coming, Alex. Somebody else had tipped a load, effectively behind them. So they were trapped in this single carriageway road. And it's just, you know, these impacts are happening left, right, and center. And, and the other one, and I think we owe a duty to the farmers who deal with it to flag this up, for some of the people associated with this, for some of the, 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 the let's call a spade a spade, for the criminals that are associated with this, there is also a huge dose of intimidation. Um, and certainly I've heard of many examples of farmers being intimidated, farmers being scared of confronting people. 
Um, we've got a little local WhatsApp group where we, we, we share uh, intelligence here and also share it with the police on that group, which is great. But you certainly see, you know, there's some nasty people out there associated with some of this. It isn't just, you know, that householder dumping their sofa. It, it is some pretty nasty criminals as well. Um, and that has big impacts. We live in you know, we live in beautiful places, but we live in isolated communities as well. And, and, and that intimidation can be pretty threatening at times. And I suppose the other thing there, you know, we've talked about COVID impacts on recycling centres, but we've heard a lot about, you know, the COVID impacts on getting people to appreciate the, the countryside more. We're all wanting to go camping this summer rather than going on holiday to, to Spain or Greece or whatever. I suppose this message kind of ties in a little bit with that of you know you're appreciating your green spaces so you need to take responsibility to to dump your waste i i, I think i think that's absolutely right alex and this is a really tricky one because for me the, the 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 number of people we've seen in the countryside has been staggering i um i i'm using an example at the moment on easter sunday i had four thousand people walk through my farm you know it, it is and i'm not in a national park or, or or anywhere like that i'm just a, a home counties farmer who happens to be on the urban fringe so you get lots of people um, so we've seen lots of people and that is a real positive because they've been talking to me about what's happening on the farm what foods am i growing um, what am I doing for the environment? It's been a great, great audience. Unfortunately, some of them, and a, a relatively small number, let's, let's put it in context, do act irresponsibly. You know, they leave their litter. They, they hang their, um, their dog feces on a tree as if it's some sort of Christmas bauble. You know, we, we, we do see irresponsible behavior. The vast majority, though, have been very responsible. And I think, actually, there may be something there in... How do we harness that population of people who actually are new to the countryside, who are appreciating the countryside in a way they haven't historically and get that message across to them about, you know, they, they don't want to see litter. They don't want to see uh, low level fly tipping. They don't want to see industrial scale fly tipping and actually get them to help us in this in this effort, um, because I think they are. Uh, in a, in a lot of places they are people who historically never went into the countryside yeah it was one of the only things we could do for a short period of time you know but friends of mine who were were in a flat in an inner city area you know, one of the very few things they could do was get out in the countryside um, and unfortunately there's a very very small number uh, but a persistent number who think they can treat the countryside as if it's somewhere to to dump their rubbish and, and then turn a blind eye to the impacts of that. Win a takeaway for you and your team this harvest, courtesy of Bayer. Simply nominate your cab warrior, that teammate who goes above and beyond. Tell us why they deserve to win by tagging them and Bayer in a tweet or enter via the competition Instagram post. Two teams will win each week during harvest. Full details on the Bayer for Crops UK social media accounts. Thanks to Alex and Stuart there. As usual, it's the minority spoiling it for the majority, but surely heavier penalties would be a good start. As Stuart says, there doesn't seem to be enough of a deterrent at the moment. Let's hope we see some change on that. 
Now, as well as providing a lot of laughs, Clarkson's Farm has engaged non-farming audiences with agriculture like no other programme before it. And while fans eagerly await a second series, I'm pleased to say National Sheep Association English Committee Chairman Kevin Harrison, who helped Clarkson with his sheep enterprise, is here to tell us more about what goes on behind the scenes, how he got involved and, of course, what it's like to have one of the most famous TV presenters of all time on speed dial. Kevin Harrison, welcome to Over the Farm Gate. Hello, Olivia. Kevin, what does it feel like to have appeared in one of the most watched shows of the year? (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of surreal, actually, yeah, because, um, you know, it was obviously going on with the film and everything, uh, uh, you know, with no one knowing about it, and then all of a sudden, bang, it's out there and uh, everyone's talking about it. So, Yeah. um, yeah, an amazing experience. I bet, yeah, because I saw you at Tame Sheep Fair probably about a couple of years ago and, and texted you and said, what, what's happening? But you were sworn to secrecy, weren't you? So that was, it's obviously oh. been going on for quite a while. Yeah, and then it all sort of uh, went a little bit quiet after that because you wasn't seen so much in public. So, yeah, no, it's uh, been, a, been a good journey. Excellent. So tell me then, how did it all come about? How did you get involved? Um well, uh, obviously, Jeremy was looking for some sheep there and uh, he didn't quite know what he was doing or what he was buying and um, he just wanted a little bit of help, really. Um, so, uh, yeah, just tried to help him out where we could. So you were obviously brought in, weren't you, to help Jeremy with this burgeoning sheep enterprise. What was it like trying to teach a complete rookie everything about sheep? Because as we've seen on the show, they can be really tricky, can't they? They are. They, they, they'll exploit any weaknesses that they can spot in you. <laughs> um, but, um, no, it's, it's good fun. I, I enjoy um, chatting to anyone or helping anyone um, when, they, you know, when they're getting into sheep or, or just, I just love chatting about sheep, really, which, is, yeah. uh, which my daughter can't understand. But um, it was quite challenging to, you know, a 60-year-old who wants to get into sheep and um, who might not be the most... Agile person around sheep, let's say. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but um, yeah, it was. But it was, it was fun. Um, he took it all on, and he took it in very, very quickly. And he obviously did his research to sort of try and understand the sheep industry as well, which was good. Yeah, no, that that's really evident actually from the from the show. I mean, why did you or why did he decide on the meal sheep that, that we saw? Um, well, the decision was his in the end. I, I was just there to give him advice. Um, it was we there's so many good sheep breeds in this country to choose from so it's um it's quite a challenging um thing to sort of try and pick a breed for someone so i gave him sort of options and things like clins which are a bit more sort of grass reared maybe and um a um, bit more pedigree um and others um we talked about cotswold sheep because they're overseas in the cotswolds yeah. but he wanted to do something that was you know what what farmers would do in his area you know what 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 yeah what can we do a commercial sheep flock and um the north country no, north of england north country mule is quite a forgiving when i say forgiving sheep it look it looks after its lambs well you know and i always say if you look after them they'll look after you mm. um they're good mothers they can count um others might be a little bit more challenging so we thought that would be quite a good way to go Mm-hmm. And um, he was at Tame, and you know there was uh, there was only two or three breeds there as well. So 
yeah 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 and and just tell us about those sheep they bought them what what age and and where were they from uh, they, so they were shearlings and they'd already had uh, a lamb as ewe lambs so that just made them a little bit quieter for him so at least they knew what they were doing if you can imagine having a, a shed full of sheep that didn't know what they were doing and jeremy it might get um uh, quite interesting so yeah they'd had they'd had one lamb um and we we had to wander around. We looked through the catalogue and sort of put a mark next to um, ones that might be of interest. And then the rest was down to him. Really, he had to buy him at the price he wanted to buy him at. And uh, I was just sort of um, whispering things in his ears um, as they came in, maybe. Excellent. And how did lambing go? Because I mean, it it, it looked like it went all right on, on the show. But I mean, I think you were involved, weren't you? So you know, how how was it? And was it an indoor or outdoor system? Yeah, well, I wasn't involved in the actual lamb, and it was indoor. They had a had um, a shed, um, but lambing started right at the start of the lockdown uh, pandemic. But they'd got Ellen, um, the shepherd, in there. She's fabulous, great skills. So she was sort of there to watch from a distance. But you know, there was a lot of time when he was there on his own, um, and he had to rise to the occasion, and he did. I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, there was that. There's a, a clip in the program where he delivers a lamb, and I think he says, "I've done a thing." Um, and it's, and I, I felt for him there because there's, there's so much stuff he did, you know, have to struggle to get his head round with, you know, uh, later on with the shearing and things like that. So, mm. you know, to actually, and I, I, I've delivered thousands and thousands of lambs, and you know, that moment is is always a, a fond moment and a, yeah. a, a good moment, and to see him do that. Um, was great and I think he actually really enjoyed it um, you know and having something to get stuck into and obviously he was there Alan was there if um, he got really stuck um, but you know he did a lot of it on his own as well when when she'd gone home yeah yeah no that's brilliant it did seem like a very special moment yeah definitely (laughs) (laughs) have you ever seen him look so um, no no No, and probably never will again. But no, it was it was a really nice moment, wasn't it? I mean, how do the yeah. sheep fit in with the other enterprises then? Because obviously the, the mainstay is arable, isn't it? It is. Yeah, we had some sort of grassland that was uh, ELS, I think. So, mm. I mean, if you went there sort of in June, it looked absolutely fabulous with all the flowers and stuff. But then um, it didn't really serve much of a purpose mm. um, the rest of the year. So I thought he'd see if he could try and utilise it with some sheep. Um, and I, I mean, sheep are brilliant for arable rotation as well. They didn't really go on the arable ground as as much. Um, I think in the winter they went on a little bit of, um, of of ground, but you know they are brilliant for putting organic matter. And I did share a copy of the uh, NSA's uh, sheep in the arable rotation with Jeremy, and I think he read it. But um, yeah, they they did. Their main time was spent on um, sort of the the less productive grassland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, the programme seems to have just have been a, a great success and gone down so well with farming audiences as well as the mainstream audience, hasn't it? I mean, I know so many farmers that, well, you, you and I both know that have driven down from the north of England to visit Diddley Squat. Why do you think <laughs> it's appealed so much to, to you know, proper farmers? I don't know. He's just, he's just, it hit the nail on the head, hasn't he? He's got through to both. And I have a lot of friends who are farmers and not farmers, and they all say the same thing. You know, it's it's showing the reality of farming, not just the, the fluffy side of it, the challenges, um, you know, things that 
uh, farmers can relate to going wrong is sheep getting out or something yeah. breaking um and 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 yeah in, in and just worldwide as well you know i've got friends in australia and america and they say oh my friends come up and say have you seen that uh, clarkson's farm and it's, <laughs> well funny enough i know someone was in it but uh, <laughs> no but it's just just been had an amazing response and even sort of um politicians i've heard praising it as well yeah well that's yeah that that's great that it, the messages are, are getting through particularly when i spoke to jeremy a, a few weeks ago um for an interview for fg and he was saying you know just he, he seemed quite shocked by the level of red tape um which yeah. i thought you know we all know that bureaucracy in farming is just it can be feel almost ridiculous at times but he did seem genuinely surprised didn't he yeah he did yeah and uh <laughs> I think as well for farming, we're generically paperwork shy, a lot of us farmers, aren't they? And the bureaucracy, I, th I don't know if there's more in farming or whether we just, um, because we're quite hands-on, it seems more, I don't yeah. know, but and there is as much there as there is for other industries for sure. Yeah, yeah. And why do you think, well, we just mentioned that, but I mean, there's so many of these farming programmes now, isn't there? You can't turn the TV on for, for <laughs> being a, a farming programme. Why do you think programs like these are important for the industry in terms of, you know, talking about our industry, but also connecting with consumers as well? Well, we've got to get the message across. I think now with leaving Europe and getting uh, different trade deals, you know, like Australia or whatever, I think we've got a lot to do now to educate the consumer mm. because they've almost got to make the choice for themselves because mm. the government might not protect um, them against what's coming in and the standards that it's reared at. Um, it's all very well having the best health and welfare and environmental standards in this country. But then if we go and import lots of um, cheap stuff that aren't those standards, then it's wrong. Mm -hmm. So it's down to really for us now to maybe um, approach the consumer and trying to educate them into what, what they're buying. Um, and, you know, we saw it through the, the pandemic. All of a sudden, people realised it was quite a treat to go to a farm shop and, uh, and, and buy some of their food and go home rather than eat in a restaurant. And they go into local farm shops and they're buying local produce um, rather than maybe going to a restaurant that serves Australian meat from the cash and carry. Yeah. So um, it's good. Yeah, absolutely. And let's hope that that, that trend continues post-pandemic as well. Because Yeah. Um, that's that's the thing, isn't it? Trying to keep yeah. that momentum going. Um, I mean, Jeremy paid nearly eighty-five quid for a ploughman's lunch at a Cotswolds farm yeah. shop. Very well-known Cotswolds farm shop, and clearly it was staged. But it did highlight the gap, didn't it, between what most farmers sell for and then what consumers pay? I mean, you know, do, do yeah. you think that people realise there's such a disparity? Um, well, he had a sneaky bottle of rosé in there, didn't well, he? Well, he did. That loved. Yep. <laughs> I mean that that uh, pictures a lot of well images up a lot a romantic idyllic um, picnic for him and Caleb doesn't it so uh, yeah it's not it's not a bad uh, picnic to be brought by your boss but um and seriously it's um you know farm shops the, the people, it's not there to go and buy you know, cheap at cost products we're selling a lot of our costs at, uh, 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 selling we are selling a lot of our products at cost yeah. anyway. You know, these are people are putting quality on that food, you know, like the, the cheesy board and the ham and the tires. And um, and why why shouldn't 
we charge a bit more for it. Um, you know, we buy we buy everything at retail and sell everything at wholesale. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the consumer appetite is there for quality produce, mm-hmm. um, um, then then it's great. And if they're happy to pay that a little bit more and and res- and respect the amount of effort that's gone into it then that's great too mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i mean did you ever uh, have an opportunity to have a you know a romantic picnic with jeremy at any point during filming <laughs> oh that'd be telling but uh, i did go uh, the, the end the end well, the end scene with um with them all sat around um i would have liked to got to that but what with the pandemic and things and um and other other work commitments we didn't get to that but uh, maybe another day you'll invite me up for a bottle of rosé and uh, a pork pie well i think that's put us all in the mood for a glass of wine and a pie thanks to kevin harrison there and hopefully we'll see him pop up again soon on clarkson's farm in series two well that's it for this week we hope you enjoyed the show make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes of over the farm gate until next week from us at fg thank you for listening goodbye for now